Hey friend, Graham Baldwin here with The Speaker Lab. Hey, wouldn't it be nice if someone gave you the exact process to find and book more speaking gigs in 2024? That'd be nice, right? Well, I'll tell you what, we're just gonna do that for you. We've created a new 18-page guide based on Dan Irvin's process that helped him actually book over $100,000 in speaking gigs in the past year. Now, Dan is one of our uh, team members here. He's this, a very successful speaker and also one of our coaches. And so you're gonna learn how to get started prospecting, master discovery calls, proposal emails, and so much more. All you got to do is go to thespeakerlab.com slash steps. Again, that's plural, thespeakerlab.com slash steps. We're going to send you that PDF guide right to your inbox. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash steps. That's it. That's all you got to do. Go there. Hey, thanks for listening. We appreciate it. You're awesome. Hey, hey, what's up, friends? Graham Baldwin here. Welcome back to the Speak Aloud podcast. So good to have you here with us today on episode 320. We've got another great show for you today. We are actually nearing the end of this fun series. We've been in highlighting student success stories from here within the Speaker Lab. So today we're going to be talking with Jessica Kriegel, and uh, she's doing something I think is going to interest a lot of you because you've probably wondered if it could actually be done. You see, over the past few years, Jessica has built up a, a very successful speaking business in support of her book. But as you're going to hear her talk about, she's actually in the process of completing completely switching up what she speaks about. So we're going to talk about what are the downsides to changing speaking topics? Are there any upsides, positives? And if so, what are they? We're also going to talk about how do you navigate that transition without losing momentum and blowing up your speaking career? Of course, you don't want to do that. We're going to get into all that. Plus, you're going to hear us talk about uh, speakers bureaus near the end of the conversation, where I think Jessica shares some really good wisdom on what you can expect when you start working with a bureau and if you should go down that route. It's a really insightful conversation. I think you're going to get a lot out of. Let's jump right in. Here's another successful student from the Speaker Lab, Ms. Jessica Kriegel. Enjoy. Hey, what's up, friends? Grant Baldwin here. Welcome back to the Speaker Lab podcast. Today, we're going to be talking with Ms. Jessica Kriegel, talking about her speaking journey and uh, some lessons that she's learned along the way. So, Jessica, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. Let's uh, first of all, let's give us a little snapshot of you, your world, your business, uh, and then also specifically, how does speaking fit into that? Because I know speaking is just kind of one hat uh, that you wear. So, uh, kind of give us the the uh, the thirty thousand foot view of what your business is like today. I have been speaking for six years now, and it started when I finished my doctoral degree and I turned my dissertation into a book. It wasn't something that I had planned on doing, and I actually was being asked to speak at events before my book was even published, and it was through the being invited to speak that I realized I might want to be speaking. I mean, might want to do a keynote yeah. side gig, side hustle, essentially. So my book was called Unfairly Labeled, How Your Workplace Can Benefit from Ditching Generational Stereotypes, and it was all about debunking the myths that different generations are different, and that there's some kind of golden ticket to how to engage and attract and retain millennials. My thesis was millennials are the same as everybody else and we all just need to get to know each other and get interpersonal and stop putting labels on people. It was really ultimately a keynote about unconscious bias before everyone was talking about bias, but it was caked in this generational thing, which everyone was really excited about at the time. Millennials has been a hot topic for a while, so I kind of rode that wave. And I was doing my own thing. I just People started hearing about my book, and so then all of my business was through referrals, and that's when I started thinking I really should proactively market and start to 
bring business in because I'm getting yeah. plenty of business without doing anything. Imagine if I actually tried. Right. That's when I started working with you and your team and understanding how to actually build a speaking business. And as that tapered off, my book got a little bit old. And also I got a little bit bored with its subject matter. I really mm -hmm. only had the one keynote and it was the kind of thing that you could do in your sleep. I'd wake up five minutes before the keynote and then I'd jump on stage and do it and nail it. And it was fun, but it was also kind of, there, there stopped being any kind of challenge or engagement yeah. in it. So now I'm writing my second book and I just did a complete rebrand. I'm, I'm really abandoning the whole millennial thing. I thought for a while, really struggled with how to position myself as I wanted to start talking about something else, whether I should just leverage being the millennial expert and ride that, mm -hmm. or if I should really pursue doing my own thing. And I trusted my gut which involved completely changing what I was talking about because it's what I wanted to do. And I knew that I had built a speaking career before on a topic and I could probably do it again if I just went for it. And so now I'm a, my second book is called The Culture Equation. And it's all about how you can drive performance in your business by aligning your strategy with your culture. And the subtitle is how much is your culture worth? It's really looking at culture, which is an airy fairy ideological kind of touchy feely thing that people think into a concrete quantitative metric thing. Yeah. You know, let's actually look at culture and how much it will affect your business if you pay attention to it and really drive the success of your strategy, which drives performance. So that new website is kicking off um, now and it's, you know, we're good to go. I just got signed by cool. a couple speakers bureaus. So it's exciting right now. Very cool. And how many, how many speaking gigs are you doing on an annual basis right now? And I know at the time this recording, we're kind of in, in COVID land where uh, everything is kind of up in the air, but uh, generally speaking, how much speaking are you doing? Generally speaking, 40 to 50 speaking gigs a year. Wow. Awesome. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, all right. So let's go back in time for a second here. You mentioned that the, some of the speaking came out of you were doing your dissertation. Uh, was the goal of, hey, I'm going to do the dissertation. I'm going to turn it into a book. It's going to lead to speaking. Or was I'm going to do the dissertation. And then like, what was kind of the career, career path that you were on? What were you wanting to do? I was doing leadership development, organizational development in-house at a big tech company in Silicon Valley. And um, I was just going to school because I was wanting to learn. I was just always been a learner. And so yeah. there was no plan. There was no, this book will lead to this speaking career will lead to this consulting engagement. It was none of that. It was just, I'm really interested in millennials because frankly, I was always the millennial who was treated differently and always um, told that I was too ambitious or too lazy or tech savvy or whatever the stereotypes are that are associated with millennials of which sure. none of them resonated with me. So it was more like, let me just prove all these people wrong and see what happens. I was just enjoying it and being present. And then the book felt like I was, I was naive enough to think that I could quickly transform my dissertation into a book with very little work. I thought that, you know, I got 150 pages written already. That'll be done. Actually, it took a lot more work than that. And, you know, it was much more involved. But by the time I was halfway done, I was already excited about it. So there was no plan. It was yeah. just opportunities coming to me as they came and really being passionate about the work that I was doing and the subject matter. I'm a researcher at heart. And so I know my subject matter more than anyone knows their subject matter. And it, it just felt like I really was the expert. I really was the foremost expert on generational stereotypes and what's true about millennials and what's true about baby boomers. Because I not only read the articles and the research, but then I would look up the sources that those researchers were citing and then find out which researchers were lazy researchers and which researchers were actually solid researchers. And so I just got excited about the content. I think that was my strategy for success. 
So once you decided to do the book, was the, was the goal with the book of, uh, I want it to lead to speaking or is it again, just kind of, I just want to do the book. There's so I've, I've got some good content here that I've worked. I've already put the work in for the dissertation. If I can kind of, you know, reformat, restructure it, uh, add some more to it, that maybe there's a book concept here. And then, the, and then, you know, if I get speaking gig, great, but that wasn't, it sounds like that wasn't ever the goal. That wasn't ever the goal. Yeah, no, it wasn't the goal. I just started getting invited to speak at places and then I got a big speaking engagement at I4CP, which was, um, you know, it's just a series of keynotes. It's a great conference. And I was one of the keynotes and I got a ton of business from that one speaking engagement. And then that just led to more and more referrals. So I just accepted it and, and kept going. How did you get that first gig? Uh, my dissertation supervisor at my doctoral program suggested me when he was networking at some event said, Hey, you should talk to Jessica Creedle. She's doing some interesting research and their research. They're like a think tank. So they were excited about a researcher and they invited me and the rest is history. I came, I've since spoken at many other conferences after that. And they gave me my first solid referral. The CEO of I4CP said, Jessica was the highest rated speaker at our conference. She rocked the house. And when I would show people that and it was associated with I4CP, it just gave me instant credibility. So you sounds like you were doing a couple of these speaking gigs. And like you mentioned before, uh, it was some stuff that was either referral, word of mouth, stuff that would kind of randomly fall in your lap, which is the case for a lot of speakers. Like yeah. we enjoy speaking, speaking's good, but you don't want to build a business based on this very reactive, passive. I'm just waiting for someone to hopefully magically find me. And right. so at what point did you decide like, okay, I've got enough opportunities here. I think I'm on to something. I could see how I could potentially do more of this. But again, I don't want to go about it in a passive, you know, standoffish way. I need to actually have a plan here to be able to book gigs. So how did you start to make that mental transition to going from, you know, accidental speaker to I'm going to take this seriously and I really want to build a speaking business? It was actually, I looked up how much to charge because I started getting calls from big companies and I've landed on your website, which helped me figure out how much to charge. And then I realized, oh, there's a whole industry, a whole business that I could build here. There was a whole system that I could develop. And, uh, I didn't, I wasn't even looking for that. So it was through looking up how much to charge that I found your website and then saw the resources that you offered and then thought, Oh, I should look into this. They probably could build more business pretty easily. And, you know, I always say that your best referral is being good. I just have the gift of being good because I was a theater major. So it's not a gift. I mean, I, I know how to have stage presence and be on stage and I have humor and I practice my jokes and I practice my lines and I, know how to nail the delivery on certain things. And that always goes over well, but the system part of it, the building a team part of it, the knowing how to proactively market and engage that I had no idea. And so that was all thanks to you and what I found online. Cool. And so you decide, you come across some of our stuff. It sounds like maybe you'd come across, uh, we have a speaking fee calculator. So if anyone wants to check that out, yeah. you can go to myspeakerfee.com, myspeakerfee.com. You answer a couple of questions, it's totally free. Uh, and then they'll tell you what you should be charging. Because the, the reality is like when people ask, you know, how much should I charge as a speaker? The, the truth is like, it depends, which is a horrible answer. Uh, so we put together that calculator that hopefully takes some of those different variables and factors uh, and shows you what you should be charging to speak. So uh, again, if people want to check that out, go to myspeakerfee.com. So, uh, so it sounds like you go there, you get your speaking fee, you start to looking into the, the speaking fees uh, and what the industry looks like. Where, like, where do you do from that, from that point? Because again, it's one thing to, um, to, I'm doing a few gigs to, I realize how much I should be charging. And then it could be like just simply that. So at what point did you decide like, no, no, I, I need to take this seriously. Like if I want to, if I want to make a living of this, if I want to make a career out of this, then I, I have to do more than just 
again, wait for things to, to magically find me. So what, like, where do you go from that, from that point? It was probably when I did your uh, book to pay to speak seminar, webinar, whatever. It was like an hour and a half long thing. And you told sure. your story and how much money you had made and how you built it up. And I was like, dude, I could do that. I just have to do it. You know, I mean, that's always been my philosophy about everything. I yeah. can do everything, anything I want. I just have to do it. And yeah. that's the, the barrier is always the doing of it. And so once I decided that it was, okay, I got to get a website. I got to hire people to help me with these different elements of it. And then the rest was history. What was it that you felt like that you needed to hire people for? Because that, that's always a, um, it's not necessarily a requirement. And it's also going to be a thing that's daunting for people going, I don't know how to hire people. Like, and I don't know how to do these different components or, you know, build this part of the business. So what were the things that you felt like you needed help with or that you were, you were struggling with? I needed help with the technical stuff, the design, the image, the branding, the yep. narrative, you know, the story of what I, I knew that I was selling my, um, you know, my research essentially in the book. But once I started shifting my brand, I needed someone to help me create that, craft that narrative. Selling culture transformation is really tricky because culture can mean a million different things and transformation yep. can mean a million different things. And I really didn't want to be the kind of speaker that says, my audience is all business people, you know? Right, and right. so I needed people to help me kind of craft that marketing people. And then I needed the website people and the design people. And then I hired people to make my PowerPoints look legit. I just wanted, I realized that this key to, to success in the speaking industry is what you look like online. When you look solid, then people think you're solid. And then if you do your gigs and you're good, then you get referrals. And you just, you literally have to have the look of being a professional speaker. And as soon as I had the look, then the rest kind of flowed from there. Yeah. So it was just that it was developing the look, developing the messaging, developing that technical stuff. I considered doing a virtual assistant and um, ultimately decided against it. I thought, you know, I could have them kind of call the website. Sorry, there's someone's vacuuming in the other room. So you might have background noise. That's My fine. Dad. You're good. Um, I didn't want to do that. I wasn't the kind of person that was going to be cold calling. I was the person who was going to kind of target my specific audiences and then go after them hard and, um, kind of lean into contacts and that kind of thing. I didn't want to be the person that just kind of blasted out, Hey, I'm Jessica and this is what I do. Yeah. So that was a conscious decision on, on my part. I could have hired a virtual assistant, but I never got there. And then my husband was doing the CFO thing. And so he was handling all of the finances. And so then that was easy. Hey friends, do you know the five steps to book more gigs and get paid as a speaker? Well, if not, listen up because these same five steps to help me to grow a seven-figure speaking career are all laid out in great detail in my latest book, The Successful Speaker. Five steps for booking gigs, getting paid, and building your platform. Whether you want to speak as a side hustle or your dream is to become a full-time professional speaker, I know what it takes. I share all of that with you in this definitive step-by-step -step roadmap. Let me be your guide. Learn from my mistakes. Get paid what you know you're worth to share your unique message on stage. If you want to read the first chapter for free or just check out the book, go to thespeakerlab.com slash book. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash book. Check out your copy of The Successful Speaker. Uh, okay, you, you bring up a couple different things I want to dig into. So 
first of all, whenever it comes to, to being a speaker, uh, as speakers, we're in the problem solving business. And so whenever you decided like, okay, I have my dissertation, I have this book, I have kind of this natural topic that I could speak about in terms of like helping um, uh, with millennials and helping with culture. Uh, but as you're even kind of figuring that out and figuring out what that looks like, how are you how are you kind of determining, like you even mentioned, you know, culture can look a lot of different things to a lot of different people. How did you figure out how to frame that in such a way that this is something that, that organizations and groups and companies are actually looking for speakers to talk about? Because just because you've written a dissertation or just because you've written a book doesn't necessarily mean that, that organizations or groups are hiring speakers to talk about that said su subject. So how did you kind of figure out, here's your expertise, but what does that look like in the speaking industry? How did you kind of navigate that? That was just experience. I mean, I do culture transformation for a living as a consultant, you know, mm -hmm. in Silicon Valley with big companies. So I knew, I knew that this was something that was challenging. I had all of the stories to back it up. I knew there was a need for it. I knew that I had an expertise that the average business leader didn't have just because they were good at whatever they do and not this part of it. So I knew there was a need in terms of the speaking industry. I had to hire someone. I hired someone that was specifically a specialist in designing brand narratives for speakers and who yeah. knew the industry. And so that I just relied on the experts for how to position it. And the way that they positioned it was completely different than how I would have. And it's so much better than what I would have imagined or what I could have put together. I tried to do it for my, by myself for maybe a year, year and a half. I used to kind of play with words and try different things out and change my website and see what would land and what wouldn't. And every time I would show it to someone, it would resonate with half the people I showed and not with the other half. And they'd say culture, like what, like international cultures. And I'm like, no, not international cultures, like workplace culture. Oh, like happy hours and team building. And it's like, no, not team building, like business results. <laughs> like, Oh, like operations and systems. No, not, you know, it was just like, I could never get the language that would get people to get it. You know, yeah, yeah. And then I eventually landed on, we help you build intentional cultures to drive your strategy and accelerate your performance. And people just started to get it, you know? So there's two sides of the equation. There's the, what's the problem that you're going to solve, but then who it is that you're going to actually solve that for. And so you kind of touched on earlier that you've got this topic of culture. You're kind of figuring out how do you can help solve a problem for an, a company or, an, or organization. Uh, but then figuring out who do you go to for that and who hires speakers to talk about that versus trying to be, you know, like you said, all things for all people. So how did you narrow down and figure out the, the who side of the equation? I looked at my past clients and I just decided, cause my topic really is relevant for any industry, but I know that you don't want to just be relevant for everyone in order to really build business. So I just picked the industries that I had the most experience and um, referrals from. So then I could say, I, I work a lot with the financial industry. That's true. It's not because I targeted the financial industry it's just because it just so happens that a bunch of people in the financial industry called me and I spoke with them and I worked with them. Now I've got all these references that are in their industry and that resonates with people. So I just leaned into that and I did that with a couple different industries and they also just happened to align with the industries that my speakers bureau, um, you know, markets to. And so it all just kind of fell into place, but I'll work with people that are not in those targeted industries. If I get a call, I got an email from Disney the other day and they were like, Hey, can you do a leadership development thing for us? A keynote on culture. It was like, of course, I'm not going to say no, cause they're not financial services, you know? 
Right. So whenever you figured out that, okay, I'm going to double down on, on financial services or whatever the, the particular industry may be, uh, you said that you did not hire a, a virtual assistant or didn't work with a virtual assistant early on because you were really sounded like uh, leaning into your own existing relationships. There's so many speakers who the part of reaching out to um, event planners or decision makers is very daunting and intimidating. So as quick as possible, so many speakers want to, uh, farm that out to someone else, anyone else. I don't want to sell myself because if they're rejecting uh, me, I'm going to take it personally. I don't want to do that. I, I hate the idea of, of sales and follow up and that sort of thing. But to your point, like nobody knows you better than you and the relationships that you have. So why did you decide to not farm that part out, but you decide to, no, no, I, I need to be doing this part. This is maybe the most important part of the business is those relationships and reaching out and, and networking with those potential decision makers. For exactly the reason that you said, because I'm the, the foremost expert on myself and I'm also a good talker, so to speak, speaker, literally. So I know how to kind of manage a conversation to make it go the way that I'd like it to go. And I know how to do the hard sell and the soft sell and to ask questions and understand the need. And, you know, the, all of I have a sales background, too. So for me, it just felt like there's no one I can hire that's going to do this part better than me. So let me hire people to do the parts that I'm not good at which are, you know, the technical things I mentioned. And then, you know, also I hired people to do the consulting part because a lot of the speaking engagements would lead to consulting gigs. So ongoing engagements, month long engagements that were much higher fees technically, but they were not as high ROI because it was, you know, over the course of many months I was working with these people. So I would farm out that work to some of the people that I would hire, contractors that I would hire that had OD degrees that were good at culture transformation so that I could kind of pass, I could do the keynoting, the marketing, the selling part. And then as I would get business, farm it off to the team so that I could keep, keep the engine going, keep the pool building. Is that the always kind of been the plan that you, uh, and there's certainly a lot of speakers who do this, especially in the, the corporate and association space where they do speaking, but they do speaking in some ways of, of like a paid lead gen for other parts yeah. of the business, whether that's coaching or selling books or consulting, or, you know, if you're doing a 60 or 90 minute keynote, there's certainly going to be people in the audience. If it's the right audience, you're going, everything you just said, can you come to my company and apply that and help us implement that? Has that always kind of been the goal uh, as far as like the yeah. business model of what it would be? Yeah, that's always been the goal. I've always, and that was what I was doing with the millennial thing too. Let me talk about millennials. And then people would hire me to come in and help them transform their millennial strategy. Yeah. And what that meant was culture change. Let me help you change your culture. So you stop talking about what a millennial strategy might be because that's not a thing, you know? Right. And then I started to realize that culture transformation was the thing I was really excited about and that I was working on and that it would be so much bigger than just millennials if I simply changed the focus to whatever the strategy is. And then that's where the culture equation was born. It was just how can I help people transform their culture without thinking about it as this thing that is like happy hours and high fives and attaboys, you know? Right. When you were making the pivot and shift of going from, I've largely been known as this person who speaks on, uh, about millennials and uh, generations in the workforce. And now I'm going to be talking more about culture. There's certainly going to be kind of a, a natural overlap there, but uh, it sounds like you've kind of built your brand being known for one topic. Now you're pivoting to a different topic. Did you find that it felt like it was starting over or did you find like it was difficult to uh, uh, get people to think about you differently or is there any downside to making that type of pivot to uh, a totally different uh, to topic or expertise? 
Yeah, there's a huge downside. You've got a niche set up and then you're abandoning that niche and that expertise and you're going to establish yourself as now an expert in this other thing. And that was super risky and it took me a long time to decide to do it. I probably mulled that over for a year, year and a half because I thought I'm giving away something that is credibility, a name in this industry on this topic that I don't need to give away, but I had nothing else to say about millennials. You know, that was really the thing that made me realize, pushed me over the edge. I've done the research on millennials and my research landed me on this. Don't do that. So what do you say after don't do that? You know, there's no like further conversation to be had. It's that's not a thing next, you know? And so then it felt like, well, you know, I don't want to say the same thing for the rest of my life. It's going to be boring. And I think I've already said it. And while there are plenty of people who haven't heard that particular message, I wanted to be adding to the literature, you know, I wanted to be having a, having a perspective and, and giving something of myself. And I wasn't going to be able to do that anymore with millennials. So I did give something up. The benefit is I already had all of the, the reference, you know, the, uh, testimonials and I had all the big name clients that I already had. So all of that carried over as I built right. the new website. It was like, I already established as legit, even though I haven't technically given that keynote yet. I mean, now I have, but at the time it was like, this is a new keynote, but it doesn't mean that I'm new to this, you know? Yeah. I mean, because it really was about culture transformation all along. I was just talking about it with the millennial label because that's what sold. Do you think that you'll, how long do you think you'll stick with this until it gets to a point where maybe it, it feels boring or I'm looking for some other type of challenge? Because I think this is a, uh, and the reason I ask is I think this is something that a lot of speakers run into, like you mentioned, where you're on stage, you're doing a great job, but it, it's it's more or less the same keynote that you've delivered multiple, multiple times, you know it works, and it starts to, start to lose some of the challenge for you. Uh, it's the first time that audience may have heard it, but you've delivered that story, you know, a hundred times and maybe internally you're just kind of uh, on autopilot, even though it's like, it's fun and it's going well, but like, you're still like as, as entrepreneurs, as speakers, like we're looking for new mountains to climb. So do you think, do you foresee into the future that this is going to be uh, a similar challenge that you're going to run into again, that uh, I've said all that I have to say on the topic of, of uh, workplace culture. And now I'm interested in a different topic or how do you see this, that, that playing out uh, in, the, in the coming years and, and maybe advice that you'd have for other speakers as they kind of balance, here's something that I'm, pa- I'm passionate about and, and interested in, but I'm also you know, maybe interested in a different topic um, to potentially even a, a different audience. So how are you thinking about uh, navigating that in the future? Yeah, I always subscribe to the, that phrase that you make a plan and God laughs. So anticipating what's going to happen in the future, I don't try to do that anymore. When, so I have no idea. I might get super bored with this in two months. You know, I might decide in three months not to be a speaker anymore and become a farmer or a dancer or something. I have no idea. But I do know that when I decided that this would be the next thing that I was going to do, I wanted the topic to be big enough that it could turn into something else. Yeah this pivot was pretty severe in my head. It was the same thing, but no one else sees that right. Millennials to culture. It was like, for me, it, it felt like the exact same topic, but no one else sees it that way with culture. There's so much juice in that, you know, I mean, there's so much that I can research around culture, different kinds of culture, how to transform culture, culture in a virtual environment, culture in a startup, culture in a large organization, subcultures, how various subcultures interplay, collaboration as it pertains to culture. There's so much to play with there that I think that I can always have culture as kind of the umbrella and then whatever the focus area or research that that I follow will somehow land within that. 
But what do I know? I did think about that. That's my best guess, but I, I'm always open to being proven wrong by 2020 vision, you know? The, the truth of the matter is, is like every speaker, we're all making it up as we go. We're doing the best we exactly. can with what we have at that moment. You know, at the beginning of this year, nobody saw COVID coming or how that would upend the, uh, you know, the speaking industry, let alone the world. Uh, and yet here we are. And so we're all having to make these course corrections and pivots along the way. And that's part of being a speaker. That's part of being an entrepreneur. That's part of whether we know it or not, that's part of what, what we signed up for. So one of the other things that you touched on was uh, that you started working with a couple of speakers bureaus. Uh, there's a lot of speakers who are interested in working with speaker bureaus before they're ready. So how did the relationships with the bureaus come about and how are you thinking about them today? Um, the speakers bureaus, it was friend of a friend of a friend that introduced me to someone. I was getting approached to write my second book by a couple publishers and I was um, asking them what their marketing strategy would be for the book mm -hmm. because I wanted to know if I could leverage their platforms and what that would look like. And I was kind of educating them. Surprisingly, I said, you know, I'm not trying to make money on this book. Books don't make money. I'm trying to make money on the speaking and the consulting and the book is the platform that allows me to build those things. So I need to speak in order for this book to sell. So what's your plan for me to speak at your events or your whatever? And they were like, oh, we hadn't thought about that. So then I said, well, who do you know at speakers bureaus? And they knew someone at WSB. So they ended up introducing me to that person. And then because it was an inside referral, it just ended up working out. And then the other speakers bureau, I don't know, they approached me. I don't, at some point, you just, people start to hear about you, you know? Sure. And so that just, I think I was trying to get into speakers bureaus for many years because I didn't want to do the marketing. And I thought that the bureaus would do the marketing for me. Even now, they're not doing the marketing for me. I'm doing the marketing and I'm, you know, it's like a game. You got to dance with the speakers bureaus and they do call you and they do give you gigs. But um, it's not just like, oh, you're signed up and now the money starts rolling in. It's not like that. You have to work with them. It's a whole other game that you have to play. Okay. Anybody that's ever been interested in working with a speaker bureau, I need you to rewind it and go back and listen to the past minute there because that's so important. Just because you start working with a bureau or just because you get listed on a bureau site doesn't mean anything, right? There's a lot yeah. of good bureaus out there and I'm friends with several people in bureaus and in the bureau space. So it's not, it's not, not a knock on bureaus, but it's not like uh, they have all of these gigs and if only we had a few speakers, then we could just fill all that. It's like It just doesn't work like that. Like, right. You still have to do a lot of work and I always view bureaus as more kind of a, uh, icing on the cake, meaning that I'm still actively trying to book gigs. And if I get a bureau gig, that's great. I wasn't anticipating it. Gig fell on my lap from a bureau. Awesome. But I'm still, I have to proactively beat the drum and continually to build those relationships and connect with decision makers uh, that may or may not be going through a bureau in order to find me. So it sounds like you've, you found that to be the case uh, in your speaking business as well. Yeah, absolutely. But it is a little bit different, right? I mean, you're, you are, there are ways to get on the bureau's radar that are new tactics to build business that are, I'm putting my energy there instead of other places. So it, the, the game does change a little bit, but it's still something that needs to be worked and something that you need to be building proactively. No one hands you, no one hands you all the gigs you could ever want, you know? So you've been in the, in the business for several years now. And, um, at the same time, it sounds like you're still uh, building momentum and building the business as you, as you go, like every speaker is. So what would you say to those speakers who may be, uh, watching or listening who are where you were a few years ago of, I don't know what I don't know. I'm getting started. I'm booking a few gigs here and there, but I, I want to pour gas on the fire, so to speak. And, but I don't know what to do next. What, what advice would you give to those speakers? I think the step one thing you have to do is get good. 
you know, I mean, before you start working on how to market and how you're going to build the business and how much to charge and all that, you have to get good because yeah. being good as a speaker is your number one source of future income. So the people who kind of, oh, I'll figure out the keynote thing and the delivery thing. If that means doing free gigs and doing it with audiences that will, you can practice your jokes on. And I promise you, and this is actually true all the time. The first year of keynotes I did, they were horrendous compared to what I do now. And the second year, horrendous compared to the third year. And even yeah. last year, it's horrendous to compare to what I'm doing now. So it's this constant effort on being um, the best that I can be, you know? And then you do have to, I, I, I didn't know how to do it any other way other than just research. What do I do now? What do I do yeah. now? I mean, that's why I was, you know, grateful to, for the resources that you had because it, you gave me a roadmap of what to do next. And so I started doing those things and they started to work. And then the other thing is confidence. At one point when someone yeah. calls you and says, how much is a keynote? You got to just say 10 grand, you know, you never charged 10 grand before, but one day you just say 10 grand and they're like, great. You're like, oh, I am worth that now. Great. I've made it to 10 grand. That's all it takes is saying it once, you know? Yeah. Very cool. Well, Jessica, thank you so much for the time. We appreciate it. Congrats on all the success. If people want to find out more about you and what you're up to, where can we go? JessicaKriegel.com. J-E-S-S-I-C-A-K-R-I-E-G-E-L. That's my new website. It's got everything up there. Awesome. Thanks for the time, Jessica. We appreciate it. Thanks. All right, there you go. Hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Speaker Lab Podcast. And before you take off, don't forget, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a rating and review within iTunes. We read every single one of those. It helps it helps other people to find the show. Listen, we, we don't charge anything for you to listen to these. We don't have any ads or anything. We do this because we want to serve and support speakers like you. So one small favor we ask of you is that you would leave us some type of a rating and review. Again, we really, really do appreciate that. If you're looking for more help, support as a speaker as you build and grow your business at whatever stage you're at, don't forget to check out thespeakerlab.com, thespeakerlab.com. We got a ton of free resources and tools over there. So again, check it out over at thespeakerlab.com. All right, my friends, that wraps up today's episode. We appreciate you hanging out with us. We'll catch you next time. You're awesome.